DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an Associate Professor and the Academic Dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California. He also serves as the Academic Advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is also the author of Hidden Mountain, Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we discuss the writings of St. Teresa of Avila, whose spiritual classic, The Way of Perfection, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. It's wonderful to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. This is, in a very real way, a dream come true, to be able to talk about the woman who, for, can we say, for several hundred years, was known as Mother Teresa, the great Mother Teresa. La Madre, that's Mm -hmm. right. The Carmelite reformer who also, in two senses, she started the Carmelite reform of the Discalced Carmelites, but also the Carmelites of the Ancient Observer can claim her as a reformer because after she started the reform, the Discalced reform, her original community invited her back to be mother of her monastery, and she introduced some reforms into the Ancient Observance that have uh, continued to impact today. So both groups consider her, you're right, La Madre. Oh, well, how can we come to know her more deeply? You know, the heart kind of desires to know someone. And oftentimes, when it comes to the lives of saints, we're given biographies. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes doesn't help us to understand the transcendent nature of that soul that has touched us in such incredible ways. Well, in the case of St. Teresa of of Avila, we have not only her biography, which is a beautiful story, and there's many, many lessons to be learned. In fact, she wrote a kind of a spiritual autobiography that she called La Vida, or is called La Vida, or The Life. But that was her first work. She has other works that she did, and these other works even beyond her own biographical experiences, these other works help communicate graces of prayer that were part of her life, part of her heart, and that she wanted to impart to her sisters so that they could kind of follow in her footsteps towards intimacy uh, with the Lord. She believed that intimacy, friendship with the Lord, was the most important thing to be pursued in this life. And she believed that the Carmelite vocation was a special vocation into intimacy. And so her writings are kind of geared at helping sisters realize the friendship that she knew so that they could take the gift of that for the church. You know, the church not only has a head, like the pope or the bishops or the priests, that they all of them have the charism or the office to act with the authority of Christ, uh, the head for the building up the mystical body. But the church uh, isn't just a head 
the, the church is, is a mystical body, and a body not only has a head, but it has a heart. And so when we look into the writings of the women mystics in general, and I think in a very particular way with Teresa of Avila, very specific way, we are entering into the very heart of the church, and the heart is a place of, of great wisdom. And so Teresa, Mother Teresa, is inviting us to uh, drink from a, a fount of wisdom for the building up of our own spiritual life today. Amazing. The gift that we have in those particular writings that you've just cited, we have them because she was compelled to write them. It's not as though she, and all the activity and everything that she was involved in, and including the time she set aside for her great prayer, but she was compelled by her spiritual director, those who were in authority over her, to write these things down. Yes, yeah, so she was under obedience when she was asked to do this, so that her first work, of course, uh, the life that we've previously mentioned, and her greatest masterpiece is The Spiritual Castle. She writes more towards the end of her life. But between the life, the, her life that she wrote, La Vida, and The Spiritual Castle, she has other works that are considered spiritual classics. And in fact, they're considered among the greatest spiritual classics in the Catholic tradition ever written. Among these, or these would include uh, The Way of Perfection that I'm looking forward to discussing with you. There, there's also the Book of Foundations. There's a, a commentary on the Song of Songs. So she has uh, her life and then these other major spiritual works that provide her wisdom. And what's beautiful is one work kind of builds on another. So in her life, she's introduced in her life that there are degrees of prayer, and uh, that there is prayer that is very important for beginners to take up, but then a new kind of prayer that takes over as somebody becomes proficient in the spiritual life. Then there is a prayer that the Lord has for those whom he has perfected in his love, and she describes each of these stages of prayer uh, already in her very first work. Well, that basic description is something that will be developed in all these other works that I just listed, including this work, The Way of Perfection. She, she's going to talk to her sisters about how to follow the Lord more perfectly. And kind of the heart of this work is her continued uh, development of a doctrine of prayer that, that still benefits us today. I think when you look back at what... Sh- she brought forward for her sisters, and you can see the fruitfulness of how it would affect the church. I'm thinking of those saints in particular that were touched by her that you may not have suspect outside of even the Carmelite order, and the name that jumps out right away to me is uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori. Mm-hmm. He would really take her writings to heart. He was born shortly after her death. And so many others, people that would pick up a copy of that life, that first initial writing, and would be so affected. One of the classic stories is Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who would become one of her spiritual daughters. That's, that's right. So, um, and that's the beauty of studying spiritual theology just in general. 
when you begin to get into the uh, wisdom of a particular saint, they are still speaking to us today. Their wisdom is still very relevant. And in particular, Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Avila, she uh, has insight into a whole range of, of experiences that are involved, that the heart is availed to or vulnerable to as it approaches deeper and deeper intimacy with the Lord. And she doesn't claim that everybody experiences everything, and she's not even... But but what makes her work so important is that even though all these experiences are beautiful and wonderful experiences to have, she is going to, in her work, especially here in Way, Way of Perfection, she's going to pound over and over and over again that no matter the experience, you need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. No matter the level of maturity that you've arrived at or the level, state of ecstasy that you has come over you, the moment you start being more concerned about your experience than the Lord, the moment you begin to lose focus on Him, the moment you, you kind of step back and look back at how good you were, uh, you know, boy, I'm doing really good now, uh, that's the moment when it's been lost. To, to follow in the footsteps of our crucified master, uh, this requires a singleness of purpose, a certain kind of loss of self, a, a stop not being so worried about yourself. Well, these kinds of things, when people like St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, or, or, or more commonly Edith Stein, experiences these ideas, uh, lets the truth of them ring in her being. She wants to respond to them. And in her case, she became a Carmelite. Others will read this, and they may not become Carmelites, but their own understanding and life of prayer is profoundly impacted. There is such an earthiness about her writings. You think about the time period, the 1500s, the, the mass media of the day was the, a book. You know, even a couple hundred years before, people didn't have access to it. But by the time Teresa is writing, it, this is a time when this kind of this ability to be able to communicate, even outside of your convent, out of your particular order, but to get disseminated around Europe and maybe even around the world, it's because of the advent of a book. And hers was such an easy, beautiful one to enter into. It's true, you know, we're, we're dealing, it's in the same century that the printing press was invented, and so people are uh, getting uh, access to more books. Uh, people, although they can't read Latin anymore, vernacular editions of the Bible have gone out. This is part of the controversy with the Protestant Reformation, you know. Is having a vernacular version of the Scriptures good for the church or not? It will take the church some time to, to figure this out. But Teresa is obviously someone who's benefited from praying through the Psalms and has an understanding of the scriptures that have emerged after years of religious life. She entered the convent at 18. Her conversion happened at the age of 39. And the work, The Way of Perfection, she's in her late 40s while she's writing this work. Uh, late 40s, maybe early 50s, that this work is being taken up. And so now she's writing with a lot of experience, and the Word of God has kind of permeated 
her being. At the same time, though, if you compared her to like John of the Cross, you'll notice that she's not as conversant with the scripture. So what she does then is what she brings to to bear on the text more is how she has received the word that she received in liturgy, how she received it and lived it, and she's trying to pass on that lived experience to to her sisters so that they know how to live. Mm. And help us to to understand the effect of that, I mean, of her charism and how that would be touched and ignite those around her in this period. Sure. Well, I, I think what would be um, important to understand is Spain as a kingdom and as a culture is kind of at the heart of a lot of things right now um, in her lifetime. King Philip uh, is uh, doing three things all at once. He uh, is sending expeditions of missionaries into the new world to evangelize the new world. So he's involved in a huge work of initial evangelization of the Americas. Uh, And and in fact, right around the the date of her conversion, Our Lady of Guadalupe appears in Mexico. That date, I think it's 1534, 1535, right in there, that date marks the beginning of the most rapid evangelization of a continent ever in the history of the world. The churches in Mexico will uh, actually be baptizing tens of thousands of people on a daily basis. So many people that they describe these massive baptisms in the rivers of Mexico. So it's an incredible time. Philip, you know, the conquistadors, everybody knows about that, but they forget that they're also building missions and evangelizing a continent, North America and South America and Central America, all one continent. He's evangelizing the whole thing. At the same time he's doing that, he has Protestant revolts in the north. In fact, in the way of perfection, Teresa of Avila, part of the reason why she's writing this is that so many people are becoming Protestant and leaving the Catholic Church, and she's deeply concerned about that. She says, you know, part of the reason why we are here as sisters to live this way of perfection is so that we can pray for the church. By uh, entering into a way of perfection, we can help the preachers who are uh, preaching and the teachers who are teaching those Catholics who who are struggling right now with the idea of Protestantism and what it means to be Catholic. We are helping them uh, remain firm in the Catholic faith. This is very important to Teresa, and she views it as the special mission of her sisters to pray for the teachers and preachers of the church. At the same time, that is going on in the kingdom of Spain. Uh, there's also been their own version of kind of militant Islam rise up in the Mediterranean. The largest armada known to history was amassed uh, during the same time period, set sail against Rome, and Philip uh, organizes a navy to stop it. And he, he's grossly outnumbered with inferior weapons. And by a sheer gift from God, uh, somehow manages a military victory that actually changes the course of history. Because had they not won, uh, Rome would have been sacked, Spain would have fallen uh, soon afterwards, Mo- most of France would be uh, uh, under Islam during the same time period that we're talking about Teresa of Avila. 
Teresa of Avila, is a, in this work, she's a little bit less concerned about the rise of Islam, but to con- make the connection, when she was a little girl with her brother, the two of them decided that they were going to go on a children's crusade, a witness to the Muslims as little children, in order to convert them all for Christ. And uh, fortunately, uh, one of their uncles caught them at the end of the driveway and sent them back home. Mm-hmm. That's the time period in which we're living. And, and Philip himself, you know, he inherited his, this kingdom from Ferdinand and Isabella. Their vision of a Catholic kingdom would be a kingdom built around the Eucharist, built around uh, a kingdom rooted in mental prayer. For them, they, what they highly esteemed in their, during their own reigns were these holy women in Spain called the uh, Beatas. Now, some of them had some really weird ideas. They were uncatechized. But still, the idea, though, that of a spiritual Spain, a Spain that had room for, for mental prayer and contemplation, where that would be a valuable thing, a vital part of Spanish culture and Spanish life. This was what they wanted to build, this is what they wanted to put together. Philip takes the, up this mantle. In fact, he will build his royal palace, Escorial. It's in the form of a, of a giant grill because it's uh, named after St. Lawrence, who was burned alive. He put all the buildings in this kind of grill shape. But right in the center of the whole complex is the Eucharistic chapel and right in the center of that Eucharistic chapel is the altar with the tabernacle. And the king will make it so that his bedroom has a little slit so that while he's in his bedroom, if Mass is going on, he can participate in Mass from his room. At night when he falls asleep, that slit is just right so that as he falls asleep on his pedal, he can look down and see the Blessed Sacrament. So the last thing he sees before he falls asleep is the Blessed Sacrament. He was a man of prayer, a man who was deeply religious, deeply pious, and who believed that the Lord Jesus Christ and his real presence needed to be at the center of his kingdom. Mother Teresa, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, her reform came up right in the midst of all of that. Philip's court, although how much Philip actually knew about Mother Teresa is disputed among the historians, Philip's court is going to be very supportive of the kinds of reforms that she's trying to do because he's grown up in a society where these holy women and their prayer are considered the heart of his kingdom. So he sees them as vital. He believes they're important for the society of Spain. Even though we live in a society where, where uh, we don't have a president or, and I don't think we've ever had a president that views contemplative religious as vital for American society. But what was true for Spain is true for us. These women and contemplatives in general, because they are the heartbeat of the church, they are the heart of the church, in a very real way, they're the most essential thing about uh, American society. And as long as God calls young men and young women into the contemplative life, some, this is a powerful moment of grace. The, the problem comes up for those who respond to that call, how do I persevere? This work, Way of Perfection, is written uh, very specifically for the women of her community, but by way of analogy 
to others who are trying to live a, a life of prayer, even lay people can benefit from this book because it teaches you how to live an authentic way of life that's pleasing to God. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Be the wisdom that's found in, in the way of perfection. I think it's very applicable to the life of a layperson, and in particular, even the domestic church, which in mother, father, raising children, and those who are even nurturing those, the extended family, the grandparents. And, and it would even be brought forward as a model for the universal church through its inclusion in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, exactly. So, for example, this book, Way of Perfection, the way it's divided is the first about 18 books are kind of like a long introduction. And then starting in chapter 18, Teresa be introduces the theme of prayer. And as she unfolds the theme of prayer, she'll talk about vocal prayer and mental prayer. And she'll talk about in mental prayer another division between recollection and the prayer of quiet. And then she goes into a commentary on the Lord's Prayer. That commentary on the Lord's Prayer 
informs our current catechism of the Catholic Church and its discussion on prayer, which is also a commentary on the Lord's Prayer. So the methodology that she uses to teach the way of perfection to her contemplative religious is something that the universal church is using now to teach prayer for all of us. She would be, along with Catherine of Siena, elevated to one of the the first female doctor first, of the church. Yeah. In 1972, the first two female doctors of the church were raised to the altar, uh, Teresa of Avila and Catherine of Siena, but they're within a month of each other. And then, of course, soon after that, John of the Cross will also be made a doctor of the church. John of the Cross, who was Teresa Avila's spiritual director, not very many years after that. That was all in the 70s. Of course, Therese of Lisieux would also be raised as a doctor of the church. So uh, within recent years, three doctors of the church, recognized by the church, but by the universal church, as teachers passing on the patrimony of our faith in a way that builds up the life of the church. Three of these doctors are Carmelite, John of the Cross, Therese of Lisieux, both immensely influenced by Teresa of Avila. That's why she's the great mama, mm-hmm. the great spiritual mother in, in a very real way. As we are about to begin the way of perfection, again, just to kind of address her particular style, it reflects her personality. I mean, the type of Teresa that we're going to find is a woman who, could we call her vivacious? No. Yeah, she has a charming personality. Everybody uh, that uh, I've read uh, says that she was difficult to say no to. So she's kind of a force of nature in herself. Uh, very self-willed and determined when she went into the convent at 18 years old. It was against her father's will. And when he found out what she did, he accepted it as the will of God, but but it wasn't something that he had, she did with his blessing, you know. And she says that she lived a very lax life, but, but in fact, if we tried to keep up with her from age 18 to 39, we would discover somebody who lived a very disciplined life, especially by our standards today. She was afraid of what was happening in prayer, and so she backed off of what she'll call in this book mental prayer, uh, only to rediscover the gift of it when she has her conversion at 39 years old. Her life was, by all accounts, good Christian life, but the Lord wanted more from her. And because of the strength of her personality, she wrestled with him until he was 39. For those of you who have strong personalities, sometimes it takes God a little while to work on you. But when he does, you're all in, and she was. And that same personality that had been resisting the Lord, she'll put to the service of the Lord and really be part of the renewal of the church in Spain that will... Uh, become what is called the golden age of Spanish mysticism. And I've mentioned a couple times her writings are, are spiritual classics. One of the reasons why is she just connected with a lot of people because of that charming personality. And a lot of the people she connected with also happened to be really good, uh, not only uh, spiritual people, but also they were great spiritual writers. So uh, St. Peter of Alcantara we probably would not know anything about his writings had not Teresa of Avila drawn attention to them in her work called La Vida, 
Similarly, she does uh, the same thing with John of Avila, who has more recently been named a doctor of the church. It's not the same as St. John of the Cross. John of Avila, a doctor of the church, he was considered the apostle of Andalusia. Teresa's mention of him, as well as the mention, uh, the friendship he had with Ignatius of Loyola, uh, becomes very important. We also get witnesses through her. We learn about the way that Francis Borgia was, uh, St. Francis Borgia, early Jesuit, was esteemed in Spain, and, and others, many, many others. And so these spiritual classics we're going to, to see kind of open us up to a whole world of beautiful spiritual literature and great ascetics and great mystics that were part of this renewal that, that she was. But, but I would say she's right at the heart of it. That self-awareness that she had, and she, for some, seems too harsh on herself. But in some cases, with those strong personalities, don't you think, Anthony, that sometimes we're hard on ourselves because no one else can stand up to <laughs> to that person or to you know they you're 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 tough because well, uh, Teresa of Avila lived a very ascetical life. The idea that somebody can be a, a great mystic and not be an ascetic is simply not part of our tradition. The ascetical life is the normal road pathway to the mystical life because what you do in the ascetical life is you, you discipline yourself cooperating with God's grace. And as you cooperate with God's grace or as God's grace cooperates with your efforts, uh, you're making space in your life for God to reveal himself to you in new ways. Any ascetical activity that is not ordered towards a deeper encounter with the Lord, in fact, really isn't Christian. The whole purpose of asceticism is to orient our whole being towards a deeper encounter with the Lord. That doesn't always mean that we receive it. It just means that we're ready for it. We've availed ourselves. We made ourselves vulnerable to it, for it. Asceticism in the Christian tradition makes us vulnerable to God. She did this, and the, the curious thing is she discovered something. There were certain things that she could do on her own efforts, and she's going to be exhorting her all throughout the way of perfection. She's going to be exhorting her sisters to do these things you know, uh, that, that she did. There were other things that were beyond her power to do. Uh, that uh, she needed special divine assistance. Sometimes uh, uh, that divine assistance came in the form of a favor she received in prayer. She asked for a grace and she received the grace in prayer. Sometimes it came through good spiritual friends. Sometimes it came uh, through a confessor or a spiritual director. And sometimes, and, and quite often in her life, it came through some external difficulty, whether it was bodily sickness or just really uh, adverse persecution and rejection from those that she was counting on, or be even betrayal. In all these things, she came to see that the Lord was using them to draw her closer to Him. And so she wants her sisters to live that same way of life that will dispose them to a deeper encounter with him. And that's really what this work that we're going to be looking at is geared towards. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the, her, her sufferings. 
those issues that would occur in her body, primarily that she writes about in the life so vividly the degree of pain in some ways, these ailments. And it reminds me so much of, you know, those moments, whether it was Francis of Assisi or Gemma Galgani, or, I mean, the list goes on and on, Bernadette Subaru, Ignatius Loyola, Mm -hmm. another example. Saints who had that, and that suffering, God will allow that in a way so that the soul cries out, they're more open to receiving his assistance. That's right. You know, I, I think that's true. I think that's what sometimes happens in our lives, that there are certain graces the Lord wants to give us, uh, but because we're either self-satisfied or we don't realize how much we need Him, in order to avail our hearts or open our hearts to Him in the way He needs our hearts to be open, He permits us to be afflicted with very, really difficult things. In fact, that part of the way of perfection is helping the sisters be faithful in their dedication to the Lord in the midst of great suffering and affliction and even uh, uncertainty. When she's writing this, her communities are sometimes being, they, they have to lock the doors. The people are trying to barge in and take them away and, and uh, they don't have enough money or food and are facing very dire conditions where the bishop all of a sudden desired, decides he doesn't want them there. And so there's a lot of uncertainty, and there's a lot of uncertainty in society and the world. It's not unlike things today. And, uh, and so they're suffering all these things. Well, how do you be faithful in the midst of that suffering so that that suffering, rather than diminish you, rob you of your devotion and joy in the Lord? How do you live in the midst of that suffering? How do you offer up that suffering in a way that will give glory to God and draw you closer to him? And this is what Mother Teresa is trying to do. St. Teresa of Avila wants her sisters to live in the midst of suffering and difficulty in a way that will avail them to the blessings that God has for them. This has been quite the introduction, not only to Teresa, but to the way of perfection. Is there anything else in closing this particular segment you would like to bring forward, Anthony? Well, I, I think... What we'll be doing in the next couple sessions is is kind of going through the introductory chapters of her work. In these introductory chapters, we're going to be seeing how she, uh, well, the great care that she has for her sisters, but we're also going to be seeing that she's not afraid to call a spade a spade. So she's not a nice kind of rosy kind uh, saint who just tells you what you think you want to hear and will tickle tickle your ears. As you go through this work, she's going to challenge you to think about your life and think about how you're living. And I I just want to encourage everybody who um, has yet to read The Way of Perfection or is maybe reading this along with us to be open to what she has to say and to to let her question you and and, and to question yourself and about how you're living so um, so that you can respond more generously to the Lord who's been so generous with us. I love it. I can't wait. It's almost as though we're, for some of us, we'll be hearing it for the first time, maybe not unlike how Therese heard it, or how Elizabeth of the Trinity, or so many others that were touched. 
and formed all those other Teresas that would come after her. And how wonderful. Thank you, Anthony. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to support our efforts. Most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.